Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. As we embark on a new year with an uncertain economic future at hand, data and analytics professionals have the opportunity to utilize these data trends for maximal business impact at their organizations. We're joined today by three data and analytics experts, Tom Davenport, Tony Baer, and Sonny Rivera. As each share a bit of their background, expertise, and predictions for 2023, a common theme of investing in foundational principles shines through. As Cindy predicted in 2022, the role of the analytics engineer replaced that of the data scientist as the world's new sexiest job. But what does that mean for our analytics boot camps? And what should we be teaching there? What about the role of AI is changing in the workplace? And how will the workforce of the future cohabitate with it? And what data storage solutions are superior? The debate about data mesh continues. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Frontify, Hari, and Workato use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Tom, I have to say welcome back to the Data Chief. A rare privilege to be on twice. So. <laughs> a rare privilege to have you on twice. So I think back to the first year when we had just launched this and you so graciously shared your insights there. And here we are um, three years later and uh, very wow, happy, to, I know, happy to have grown it. Um, and what I always appreciate, you know, you have helped shape our industry so much. You teach you write, I don't know how you find time to write as much as you do. You work with end customers, you work with students and just a wealth of knowledge. So I guess I feel like I should ask first, how do you do all this? How do you keep up with all this? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem to be too much of, a, of an exertion. Um, I, I sleep less and less, I guess, but when I wake up, I don't immediately jump on and stop start writing another book or whatever. I don't know. It's just, um, fun stuff for the most part. Pretty interesting to me. It is very fun stuff. And one of the recent research notes that I really liked was survey findings around the role of the CDO. This is still a somewhat new role. Now the majority of companies have a CDO, but tell us a little bit about the survey and maybe one of the findings that most surprised you. Sure. Uh, this was a, a big survey of, I don't know, 260 or so chief data officers and equivalents um, and sponsored by AWS. And I did it along with the MIT Chief Data Officer Information Quality Symposium. They they you know had all the the names and everything to survey, and then I interviewed twenty five people. And I guess the biggest surprise was sort of the juxtaposition of two things. One, at least in all of my interviews and in a lot of the survey responses, people said, "Well, the the big thing for 
CDOs is to create visible value, typically using uh, things like analytics and AI because they're much easier to show visible returns than data management um, activities. But then the the thing that didn't really go together all that well with that is when I asked them, what activities do you pursue? The number one activity or kind of job responsibility they thought was data governance, which I find, you know, really difficult to show value in. And I'm sort of surprised that it ended up as that high a priority. But in general, it, the survey and the the interviews were all about, you know, creating visible value. In part, I think, you know, as you suggested, the role hasn't been around for all that long and it's still sort of abstract to a lot of people. A lot of a lot of the respondents, I think in the 60% um, range, said people don't understand it very well. So even the peers of the person don't understand it well. Yeah, well, so I think this alignment to value shows a maturing of the role. It's something that should have been happening regardless. And it's. I wonder if it goes back to that their priority or responsibility has been data governance, because some of those CDOs grew up through IT. And so I would think they're more first-generation CDOs safeguard the data, protect it. And then as they evolve or if they come from the business, it's more about the business value. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. The great majority of them said that they had business and or business slash technology backgrounds. Um, and they their primary objectives are business-oriented, not technology-oriented, they said. Um, but you're right, governance is a, I think, a kind of protective function. And we some of the interviews, people said they were trying to figure out alternatives to data governance, if you will, ways to make it easy to do the right thing without constantly telling people what to do and what not to do. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... It, Govern, governance is kind of a defensive response. And yet most of the people in this survey and the other ones that I've done have said, yeah, we're shifting our focus to offense. Yeah, which I, I think is a necessary evolution. Some have said to me, governance is actually code for no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, exactly. which, I, which I think is a little harsh, but there you go. I don't, I don't even like the term. Yeah. I tell people use enable might nurse something rather than governance. I think that's great advice. Um, it's a better word. So one of the findings that I liked was that now 23% of CDOs report to the CEO. So that tells me about alignment, impact, maturing of the role. And that's an increase from other surveys that um, like maybe Gartner has done other industry surveys over time. So it feels like we're heading in the right direction one of the predictions that I wrote for this year is that some of these CDOs can make a real play at being CEO. What do you think? Are we too early or is it possible? Uh, well, I, I would guess that would not happen in 2023, but, you know, it's... Okay. Uh, it, what it, year it, then? <laughs> ever? <laughs> um, you know, I think it, maybe, well, the interesting issue is there, you could say, well, in a tech company, maybe, but many tech companies don't have CDOs or digital native companies because, you know, they think that 
everybody should understand data and analytics and it's a pervasive kind of activity. So I think it's going to take a while longer, maybe, I don't know, five years, 10 years for um, legacy companies to say our business is really all about data and how how do we use it effectively? So let's make this guy or gal CEO. I hope I'm wrong, but that would be my guess. Okay, so Tom, you freak me out when you use the word legacy companies because they do not want to be legacy companies. I think we need a better word, traditional. (laughs) They don't, but they are anyway. You know, they have technical debt. They have infrastructures that were built a while ago. And they're all trying, I think, not all, but the ones that are going to succeed are trying hard to update things and move into the new world of technology and AI and data and so on. But choose it's a it's a hassle. I mean, in one of my books, that's all in an AI book, maybe we'll talk about it. Um, it's about legacy companies. And I only have one startup. And um, it's headed by this guy, Gary Loveman. I don't know if you ever came across him. He was CEO of Caesars, uh, really heavily analytics and data oriented and really transformed that company into focusing um, quite heavily on it. So he has a new startup. He he moved to an insurance company after that to start up a new consumer health division. And he said, you know, this is just too hard. Just cost tens of millions of dollars just to add uh, a member's mobile phone number and email to the, you know, database. And so I got to do this as a startup instead. It's one of these kind of behavioral economics, nudging people into better health kinds of startups is called well. But um, it's just really much harder, I think, in an established company. And, uh, you know, th- that in a way is what makes it interesting to me. Uh, if everybody's already a believer, then you can move a lot faster, but <laughs> there aren't nearly as many organizational change issues. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of tech debt, um, organizational change issues. Even um, as one CDO said to me, we don't have a talent problem. We have a lack of an imagination. Um, so I do think your your latest book, um, Working with AI, The Real Stories of Human-Machine Collaboration, is packed with um, great case studies. Tell us a little bit about that or maybe what is one of your favorite ones? Would it be well, or would you choose something else? Um, yeah, so that book um, is was we basically wrote that book because everybody makes these pronouncements about what AI is going to do to um, work, and the, the prognostications generally are quite wrong. Talking about massive job loss, I think World Economic Forum said by the end of this year, Um, 2022, which we only have a few more days left in, 75 million (laughs) jobs will be lost to AI, um, which is crazy. I mean, I I never find any companies saying that they fired anybody because of AI, some in manufacturing because of robots, but that's about it. And so my co-author, Steve Miller, and I looked at a bunch of case studies of people who were working with AI today and seeing where their jobs are at risk, how did it change and make it easier, did it make it harder? Um, what exactly was the human doing? What was the what was the machine doing? And how did they collaborate effectively with each other? And basically the message is pr- quite positive. We didn't find 
any outright failures. Um, we heard, nobody said, sorry, my job's going away tomorrow. No point in writing about me today. By the time the book comes out, I won't have that job anymore. Nobody said that. They all said they thought there was a big role for for humans in the you know next in the midterm anyway. Who knows what happens if we reach the singularity and AI smarter and better than us at everything. Yeah, and this is where it's, I'll have to check out that study because I feel like five years ago, there was more fear-mongering about AI replacing jobs. And now it's more that it would actually be a net job creator, but maybe certain jobs. So chat is a good one we can talk about. But if you think about chat assistants or virtual assistants, that might shift where the jobs are, but either way, it's a net job creator. Have I missed something there? No, I, you know, and I, I think maybe you're talking about customer service kinds of jobs. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think we we haven't really seen it yet, but we could. And obviously, some of the some of these generative AI systems are really good at conversing um, with people and. But, you know, they also give wrong answers much of the time. Yes. Um, so I I think the vast majority of us would still prefer to talk to a human if we're calling a customer support number. But I keep thinking that'll change. I don't know. It's been, a, you know, we've been playing around with different technologies and customer service for a long time, and they're still not terribly good for the most part. Yeah. So give me one of your uh, predictions for 2023 or maybe beyond um, about one of these topics. Well, I think the prediction for 2023 is that increasing numbers of us will have colleagues, uh, co-workers who are AI oriented. And I really think the only people who have anything to worry about from AI are the people who refuse to work with it. So um, I was I did a article a few years ago with a radiologist in the Boston area who's also a PhD in AI, as it turns out, and he came up with this line, which we used in the article of um, the only radiologists who are going to lose their jobs to AI will be those who refuse to work with AI. It's not quite true yet, but it's you know coming true, moving in that direction for radiology, and I think it could be said about accountants and marketers and you know, with all these generative AI tools, content creators um, still require a human um, in the loop to create a great prompt and to edit the stuff when it comes out to make sure it's okay. But um, certainly collaborative relationship with a, with a machine in, in more and more cases. Yeah. So I think it, it, it's the human in the loop um, or the human plus the AI that makes it the better combination that's what speeds the diagnoses and makes removes some of the bias from the radiologists. But maybe if it's full AI, does that, or black box AI, does that worry you about the degree that we rely on this in terms of bias at scale? Well, but the bias doesn't worry me as much because humans are hugely biased. I think even more so than AI is generally. Yeah. Of course, you know, if AI models are trained on what on human humans have made for decisions in the past, that will probably find some bias, but um, or incorporate some bias. 
But what does worry me, I think, if the models are not transparent, that people will just refuse to use them. I mean, going back to radiology, there's an academic study, which I really like, of three groups of radiologists in a big hospital in New York, and two out of the three groups, they, they all, all three have to use AI to kind of confirm or deny their, their initial judgments. And two of the three groups just kind of blow it off if the AI disagrees with them because totally opaque, you know, the models, oh. they can't make any sense of. And so they just say, forget it. They must be wrong. I don't know why. But um, so we we need to make progress, I think, on the transparency of these models so we could have some sort of, I don't know, dialogue, if you will, between the what the machine thinks and what the human thinks. Um and that, that kind of collaboration is not easy to create. Uh, you know, it requires both sides um, compromising a bit. Yeah. Or I would say, well, transparency breeds trust. I think it's easy to create if you build that into the design from the beginning. It's hard to go back if you have black box AI yeah. and not reveal what were the inputs, what was the sample training data, things like this. So I think that's what makes it hard. Yeah, but it's really hard. I mean, you know, the most powerful form of AI that we have now is deep learning um, neural networks. And those are almost exclusively black box. Uh, very, very difficult to make sense of them. And to take um, GPT-3 for, for creating content, 175 billion parameters. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, as a human being, I'm going to make sense of what those um, parameters, what those loadings are on all those parameters and how did that come out with that particular bit of text or that image or whatever? Not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I was wondering if you were going to bring up um, GPT-3 because it is just blowing up and the fastest ever to get to a million downloads. And I remember um, a talk that we were doing, I think for VentureBeat in the last two years, and I asked you, were you concerned now that it started out open source, but now Microsoft being the main backer and owning it? And what did we think? Was this a good thing or was this a bad thing? So what do you think? Or give us a prediction around who's going to leverage it best or how in 2023. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's sort of a, a mixed bag. On the, on the one hand, I like the fact that it was open source, but one of the big investors was Elon Musk. And frankly, I'd rather have Microsoft in charge than Elon Musk in charge of anything. I, I just sold my Tesla because I really can't support that guy anymore. And um, two, I think there's a lot of competition now mm. to um, GPT-3 and when GPT-4 comes along and so on. And so I'm not as worried about one company dominating this space. Um, okay. I do think that they sort of have the lead right now. And chat GPT has been kind of wowing everybody in the past few weeks. But certainly there are competitors and some of them are open source, you know, Hugging Face and Mid Journey yeah. and so on. Yeah. Exciting times. All right, Tom, <laughs> I feel like I have to tell you my Tesla story. I'm going to share that offline, but I just bought a Ford Mach-E for similar reasons, I think. Uh. But um, so let, let's wrap up with a fun prediction. 
give me a sports prediction or maybe how much snow is Boston going to get? Uh, what, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, I think that it's going to be mostly warm in the Northeast, but I don't really care because I'll be in California. That's my prediction. Uh, <laughs> wait, no, everyone in the Northeast is not going to follow you anymore. They're going to be um, living vicariously <laughs> through you. What I really care about is that we get some rain in California. And we, we've had some over the past couple of weeks, but, you know, as you know, it's pretty dire circumstances out there. Yes. Yeah. Any resolutions that you most want CDOs or CDAOs to follow in the year ahead? Well, if you're CDO, do whatever you can to become a CDAO, because that makes the job a lot easier, I think. And not, I mean, obviously, it has its challenges, but you can show value much more readily. And don't talk about governance, as we discussed. <laughs> and and um, Enablement. <laughs> yeah, enablement. And try to start to, if you're on the analytics and AI side, start trying to improve the productivity of these activities with you know, feature stores and reusable data sets and so on, because it's really not a terribly productive enterprise. And finally, um, adopt the data product management idea to sort of get things deployed and manage over time and not just creating models that sit on the shelf. Oh, good. All right. You couldn't have teed up our next guest any better. Okay. Tom, always a pleasure. Thank you for being on The Data Chief. Thanks, Cindy. My pleasure. Now, let's jump over to Cindy's conversation with Tony Bear of DBL Insight for our next trend. So, Tony Bear, welcome to The Data Chief. Hey, Cindy. Thanks for having me. And where are you joining us from today, Tony? I'm joining us from Maplewood, New Jersey. And you know what cracks me up? <laughs> I, I think all the years I've known you, I don't think I realized you live in Maplewood, which is not too far from me and was just a few towns over from where I grew up um, in Oakland and Franklin Lakes. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I know exactly where you're talking. Yeah. But my biking territory. Yes, your biking territory. It's who knew who knew we have a pretty part of New Jersey. Um, but Tony, you and I have known each other for for decades, <laughs> I think. Um, but you just made a recent big career move. T tell us about your new role and why you made this move. Well, that recent move is about now uh, three and a half going on four years ago, uh, where I established my own independent. After basically just a little over a decade at Oven, where I established the big data practice, I then just had this crazy idea to go off on my own um, and be my own boss and be my own employee. And I'm, you know, I, I must say the quality of the hired help sometimes leaves questions to, you know, <laughs> choices to be desired. But no, I've really this it's really been a really enjoyable run. And I get to work with a lot of the same people and a lot of the same companies. It's really about being part of this community and it's just a lot of fun. That's great. And I think now have you also partnered with Andrew Brust, is that right? Or am I getting confused here? We've been on and off, you know, I would put it this way. I mean, we've been, we've been beer drinking buddies for years <laughs> and we've all, and you know, it's been more of an informal partnership. Um, and yes, he is part of, he is part of our, our data collective. So yeah, it's been very rewarding. Okay, great. So, Tony, one of the reasons why I wanted you to join our predictions episode is because if I go back to fall of 2021, I said then that the data mesh 
Data Fabrics Lake House will usurp the data warehouse and finally dethrone the data warehouse. And so you think about how we all do our predictions. Who could have imagined what a hot topic it was in 2022? And yet you, I think, wrote some of the best series of articles breaking down some of the differences. So did you envision it would be so hot throughout 2022 or did it surprise you? It's kind of surprised me. Um, and I'll give an example. And this is sort of what triggered, you know, why you've uh, graciously invited me onto your podcast today, which was um, I was a few weeks back. I was actually it was Sunday night. I was packing for for Amazon reInvent um, and I was doing some multitasking at the time. And I was doing some I was doing a Google search. And I came across this really ridiculous article of something like the eight best data mesh software companies. And I just (laughs) thought, this is just ridiculous. Um, I mean, this is exactly what I was, you know, I I wrote about this, you know, basically about a year earlier. It's like, you know, watch out. Basically, a lot of the tech industry is going to start to data mesh wash its products. And so I just wrote just it was a throwaway, you know. I just wrote, I scribbled down about a paragraph in probably about, you know, just a couple of minutes, didn't think anything of it. And 15,000 hits later on LinkedIn, we're having this discussion. It just amazed me that that small little post, innocuous post, throwaway post, touched such a nerve. It did touch a nerve. And for this year, I liken it, the prediction is really Well, we have to get past the religious wars, the holy wars. So I think that's why you got so many comments. But I do predict that organizations that embrace the data mesh concepts. So to your point, it's not a technology you can buy. But I believe that they will be able to outperform organizations that focus only on a data warehouse and they'll deliver more value at a lower cost. Do you agree or disagree? I have, be perfectly honest, I have some mixed feelings about data mesh. Okay. When I say mixed feelings, I don't mean ambivalent. It's like, I think probably a better metaphor, a more apt metaphor is that one foot is in a bucket of boiling water and the other foot is in a bucket of ice, dry ice. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Both sound painful, but I we don't like ambivalence. So lay it on us. What, nope. what makes, what makes okay. the boiling water and what makes the ice? Well, okay. For, for the purpose of this discussion, I'll, I'll tame down the temperature of the boiling water to basically to warm water and come down to the fact that basically the, the Jamak is basically, you know, came up with some very brilliant ideas about three or four years ago, um, which is that if you take a look at what was happening with data lakes, and we've been, and Cindy, you and I have been talking about this for a number of years of data lakes basically you know, degrading into data swamps. We just collect this data, cloud storage is cheap. Of course, a lot of cheap gets expensive, expensive, not just from an economic cost, but also from basically the, the legal and reputational cost of collecting data that maybe you should not be collecting or using in such a way. And so I think there's been a big concern about all this data just getting lost in cloud storage and nobody's really thinking about it. And Jamak basically, you know, very correctly pinpointed the problem and said, you know, we really need to take a much closer look at what we have there. And who are the folks that really are best 
you know, suited for doing this. And it's really, you know, what she calls the domains, which, you know, you know we used to call subject matter experts or, or teams or business, you know, or business units, you know, whatever. People who are closer to the trenches, not, you know, not from, you know, not from up top. And so I think that her ideas there and in terms, you know, which is that those folks should be taking responsibility and ownership and they should take a life cycle view and view these data as product. In other words, it's not just the data set, but it's also all the pipelines, it's the governance, the security. You need to take a very holistic view of that data. I think that was brilliant. Yeah. On the other hand, I have a lot of trepidation about that because I could also see that this could lead to more data silos. And I know that, and, and what she's talked about to basically bridge the gap is what she calls federated computational governance, which is a, which is a great idea, except that it's an idea that we've been wrestling with forever and will continue to wrestle with forever. And I feel, and my trepidation here is that one of the best practices and the technologies are really not quite there yet. I do think that in certain situations, in certain scenarios, data meshes will work. But, and I, and I went, I went down on record on this, you know, about a year ago, I said that you really need to be careful. I think where they will work is where you have teams or domains that have some sort of shared context. And that context could be that they're involved in a similar area. For instance, let's say you're, you're a consumer packaged goods, CPG company. And so therefore your supply chain, your accounting, your logistics, manufacturing will all be related domains and they all have some common understanding of the data. Um, whereas to try and generalize this out to an entire enterprise or maybe eventually, but I think that, you know, I think it will work basically where they have, you know, have shared context. Now that shared context that could come from, you know, the same subject area or from teams that are accustomed to working with each other and know each other. So I think in those circumstances it can work. I'm very nervous about the idea of trying to do any type of big bang approach. Oh, yeah. And she would not advocate a big bang. Exactly. Uh, one of the things you say is the um, federated computation. Now, I think this gets into <laughs> what's it's nice in theory, but ultimately we also need performance. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you move the data for performance reasons or for cleansing reasons and things like this. Right. So I think it's still a work in progress, which she also acknowledges, and it's not right for every organization. Right. But I would ask you then, what is the better alternative or what do you predict? Is it the data fabric? Do we stay in the data warehouse world? Are you advocating more the lake house? What's better? <laughs> I don't think it's an either or question, frankly, because data mesh is really about ownership of, of the data. And Jamak would basically say that where it's physically housed is kind of incidental to all this. What I do think is really essential to all this is that basically any organization that is practicing data mesh needs to speak with basically from, you know, from a common playbook or at least a common language. Uh, and so at the base of all that is metadata. I think we need to have a common language for expressing what this data is and for describing it and describing also practices on how we work with it and govern and secure it. Otherwise, I think we're in a situation of being in the UN General Assembly without interpreters. And so therefore, I, you know, what I, and this is what I basically wrote a year ago, and I still fervently believe this, is that 
you can implement a data fabric, whatever that is. Admittedly, the, the definition of data fabric is still hazy, but let's just assume, let's say it's a common metadata backplane for argument's sake for the moment. You can implement a data fabric regardless of whether you're practicing data mesh or not. But what I was saying is don't even think about implementing data mesh unless you have some sort of fabric at least starting to go in place. Yeah. And so this is then where the technology comes into play. So I want you to imagine, so stop being an analyst, an industry watcher. You, you just got hired as the CDO of your favorite company, and now you're going in. Is this also where are we seeing acceleration of data catalogs to enable this shared metadata but what is the approach you're going to take? And let's make it even a little more fun. Let's assume it's a startup, so you don't have to worry so much about all this legacy tech. Well, the good news is in a startup, you're going to have that shared context. You're not going to have this, this organizational sprawl. You'll have a shared mission. And so in a startup, I think actually it will be when you're starting off with a clean slate and with, and with all the players, basically, you know, hopefully on the same page. Otherwise, that startup will, will, will become a historical footnote in a year. Uh, um, that there, I think it, would, it makes a lot of sense. Say, let's basically, you know, let's organize into teams around our different data products and take that lifecycle view of the data product. And there, I would say, obviously, a catalog. At that point, when the organization is small, you, pro um, you probably will not need to go all the way with, you know, to the to the extent of having a data fabric, you could probably through a catalog enforce some of that metadata because basically everybody knows each other. It's when that organization grows and start and where people no longer are united by the fact that everybody knows each other personally, that you then have to start putting these mechanisms, these structures in place. And that's where something approximating a fabric would then need to come in to basically to complement that catalog because the catalog itself is Really, the discovery, it's a discovery tool and it's a tool where you can apply governance, but it's not the governance tool. In a small company, it's where it can do perform more of those tasks. When you get to a larger organization and people do not do not have that same immediacy, then you need to start formalizing out the infrastructure and then start to basically formalize out the technology stack. Okay, great advice, Tony. So, Tony, give me a bold prediction and a resolution that you wish data leaders would do. In 2023, one is that they. I think, I think they definitely should, you know, you know, adopt the data mesh practice of looking at data products and taking a lifecycle management approach to it. Do it with basically, you know, we'll start with the lowest hanging fruit, which is the, you know, the most business critical processes that are key to your most important goals in the new year. In other words, don't try and, you know, don't try and basically, you know, go big bang or implement this broadly. Basically identify high impact goals and really and focus on the fact of one, a life cycle management approach and to ensure that basically your teams or your domains are on the same page. That would be my immediate advice. Great. Thank you, Tony. Now give us a fun one. Personal sports. Give us a fun prediction or resolution. Oh, gosh. Next year, I'm hopefully going to crack my, my PR with biking and basically do about 2,500 miles. I've during the pandemic, I've been, it's been hard for me to break a thousand, but next year we're going to try and break out. And, and now that we can travel again, we're going to just travel your four, this bleasure trips. Um, 
I'm going to take that bike trip of Spain and, those, and that bike trip of Italy. Oh, beautiful. Those sounds like sound like fantastic bike trips. Oh, gosh, and if you yes. want to train, come up, come up in my backyard, the Appalachian Trail. I can highly recommend it. Okay. Great. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> it does. Thank you for being on the Data Chief, Tony. It's a pleasure, Cindy. Finally, let's hear from Sonny Rivera, Senior Analytics Evangelist at ThoughtSpot on our final trend of the episode. Sunny, welcome to your first episode of The Data Chief. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Where is here? Where are you joining us from? Um, I am joining you from really frigid Charlotte, North Carolina. How is it there? Because it is extremely cold here. It's like the <laughs> coldest day of the year, I think. Oh, don't even give me that. And and we already had Tom Davenport talking about how he's going to be in sunny Southern California soon. So nothing will compare to the Northeast. But Sunny, it's great to have you on the Data Chief. And what I'm excited to introduce you to the Data Chief listeners is you will get to hear from Sunny multiple times throughout this season, as he also brings voices of some of the customers and personas that he works with, including analytics engineers, data architects. So Sunny, I want to first talk about a little bit your background in the data and analytics space. Tell us a little bit about where you started and where you are today. Wow. So um, I'm going to go a little bit further back. I'm going to go way back. Okay. So to 1995, um, I actually started my own company for uh, data modeling. And so we built this great little product and we were doing quite well until this other competitor came along. You may have heard of them, a little company called Irwin. Yes, and I know. <laughs> All data modelers are thinking, oh, bring me back that time. And Irwin back in the day was called ERWIN. I don't know if you remember, people used to call it ERWIN. Well, they, they actually kind of uh, dominated the market, and we ultimately sold our intellectual property them, to them. So I like to think a little bit of that code is that I started with is still there. So I started data modeling and building a company for that years and years ago. Um, and then uh, I, I, I kind of moved here to the Charlotte region and uh, worked in the, the insurance industry, building data platforms for companies like the Hartford, uh, and went on to build uh, cloud-based data platforms um, and migrating people from on-premises to, to the cloud. Yeah, and so I think this is one of the reasons why we brought you into ThoughtSpot as a senior analytics evangelist is that you really know the challenges of on-premises, but also the promises of cloud and have helped customers get there. So when did you first start working with cloud data platforms. And even you also have implemented and migrated apps from like SciSense to Looker, implemented ThoughtSpot. When, when did you first start working in cloud products? You know, it was early and uh, let's see, I started working for a digital media company and I thought I was building uh, a desktop or I thought I was building, you know, just like a software product when I joined the company, then I realized we were building a cloud-based uh, data warehouse for marketers. Um, and that's when I got started. That was about 2010 and really, really early because we were using you know, Microsoft Azure 
very, very early on AWS, very, very early. Uh, and then, and we, you know, those kind of grew and grew uh, out of, I'd say the the early cloud platforms and then into things like Looker uh, and uh, Amazon Redshift and, and other products like SciSense as well. Yeah, so that is quite early because Amazon Redshift really only came out in the market in 2013. So we can say that you are a pioneer in multiple <laughs> things. I think the other thing, just having worked with you now for the last six months, I feel like I keep finding little nuggets out about you. I think it would be great for listeners to hear about how you used your technical skills during the Gulf War, if you're willing to share. Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, this is actually uh, quite interesting. Early on, and and I was straight out of college, and I got thrown into uh, the defense industry um, out of college, and I started building a tracking system, actually digital imaging system for those those first TV-guided missiles that you saw in the first Gulf War. So if you recall, we were all like glued to our television sets at around CNN watching these happen. Well, I was actually writing the software that processed the image and issued the steering commands on those weapons. And my future wife was the woman who developed the algorithms for all of the tracking. And I was just, as I do today, doing what she told me to do. Oh, wow. And see, I didn't know that about your wife. So she's an algorithm person, too. Um, it's great what we learn on these podcasts. Now, Sunny, you and I worked on the um, Data and Analytic Trends ebook. And one of the trends that we want to talk about in this episode relates to a prediction around analytics engineers. But I want to go back because the other thing that you are very active in is the DBT community. So tell me a little bit about how did DBT get on your radar in your previous role and how did you make the case for bringing in a new technology into a very traditional organization? Yeah, so the, the, in the financial services industry, right, they are very, very conservative about, about cloud, about having their data in the cloud. And so they moved very, very slowly. And tools like, you know, DBT and their cloud-based offering uh, was, they were very hesitant about that tool. Um, so before I go into that, what is DBT? DBT really is um, a data mop, well, a data transformation tool. It enables data architects, analytics engineers to model their data, create their pipelines, test, and then deploy their product as if it were software like the rest of everyone else is doing in their agile software development. So I think that's the huge breakthrough of DBT. They've taken the data uh, modeling, the data uh, warehouse building and turned that into a software development process that can be done agilely. So that's what DBT is. Um, I, I think the way we were able to show value and sell that internally to the business was to look at um, the, amount, the amount of man hours that we were spending, hand coding all of these pipelines, hand testing all of these pipelines and saying, okay, can we do what we called data warehouse automation. We gave it an acronym like everybody else, DWA. Um, and we were able to show 
we could decrease the time to market by about 40% and the amount of effort by 60%. So we greatly reduced the number of folks doing the work as well as the cost associated with it. And then we, we got to market quicker. Those are some hard business benefits. And I think the other reason why DBT is taken off like wildfire is because it's open and leveraging SQL, a skill that is broadly available. So the reusability is there, but I think it's also the commonality of these skills. So let's go to the prediction that we shared that relates to the analytics engineer. Tell us this prediction. Cindy, I think that in 2023, analytics engineers that have data modeling skills are going to command higher salaries than those without. These are really important skills to have, and uh, there's a lot of demands being put on this this analytics engineer's role. Um, If you think about what's happening with analytics engineers, they're a hybrid role. We have engineers that need to Um, build data models for the business to do self-service analytics, um, maybe leverage semantic layers, um, add into that Python skills. And I think you're going to see more and more importance on data modeling to enable that key feature that we hear everyone talking about, which is self-service analytics. Okay. So let's unpack this a little bit, Sunny. And I have to go back um, to last year's predictions where I said that I believed that the analytics engineer would replace the data scientist as the world's new sexiest job. And I do think that played out in 2022. Do you agree? Disagree? Oh, I, I absolutely agree. I think that's what we saw. We saw a yeah. huge demand for those, for that job. And it is a very popular job. You saw so many titles and so many people wanting that role. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think people realizing that was the work they were doing. So um, so we see this acceleration in the role, but how in the world could these people not know data modeling? Um, where have we gone wrong? <laughs> Is it no longer a relevant skill in cloud data platforms or how did this happen? You know, I, I, I have a theory. We've spent a lot of time on platforms and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of effort and innovation on data platforms, Snowflake, Databricks, GBQ, AWS Redshift, all of these platforms. And now I think what we're seeing is the platforms are mature and people are saying, okay, how do I get business value and insights from this? And that's why we're seeing so much push on these analytics engineers. Yeah, so um, it's a skill maybe that they, if they started as a data engineer, maybe they never really got the data modeling part or um, if they've been self-taught. And I actually saw something on Twitter, one of the track sessions making fun of like Ralph Kimball and um, some of the other concepts of data modeling, whether it's uh, Data Vault or Bill Inman's um, modeling approach. So is this something that people who were self-taught, they just didn't learn it? Are we not teaching it enough in data science and analytics boot camps? Or what do you think is going on here? You know, I I do think that it is not taught enough. Um, People are maybe focusing on some of the tech side of it, as opposed to 
the actual um, art and science of data modeling. And I also think what you see in the market is we've pushed so you know so fast, get something to market quickly that maybe the emphasis on the quality of the models, the reusability of the models, the ability to enable something like self-service analytics was not as highly valued. And now that we see, okay, we don't want to rebuild over and over and over again, um, let's put a little more effort into our modeling. Okay. So as you look ahead to 2023, what would be a resolution that you most want either the data architects or the analytics engineers to have? You know, I I would love to see data architects, analytics engineers model for a domain and not for a single problem. So I think that's a big part of what we see is let's do a, you know, one big table that solves exactly one problem. And I'd love to see us model for a domain that solves a lot of problems. Okay, Sunny, I'm surprised you didn't revert to acronyms here. OBT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one big table. You know, I you know, I I um I understand why people do that. It's it's really uh, uh easy to do. It makes users of that data who are maybe Excel users that like to think of it as just an Excel sheet, it makes their job a little bit easier. But it does, you know, one big table does cause a, what I call one big problem. Um, and <laughs> you can't update your data. You know, while it may perform well on one specific query, it's hard to maintain and manage, and it definitely doesn't scale to add more data to it. Great advice, Sunny. Sunny, a pleasure having you on The Data Chief. Thank you so much. Look forward to coming back. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.